This is Purple Radio On Demand. Hello and welcome back to In Discussion With. I'm your host, Joshua Nicholl, and today I'm really excited to be chatting to a star of stage and screen, Miltos Urolimo. Welcome to the show, Miltos. Lovely to be talking with you, Joshua. It's a pleasure. Thank you for asking me. It's lovely. It's lovely to have you on, um, to, to be speaking to, to somebody who's who's starred in, in so many cult classics in, in, in recent history. Um, I must ask first, first of all, though, how... How have you how have you found the last last year or so? Because it's been quite tricky for for some people, and and obviously, especially the line of work that you're in, um, it's been particularly difficult for people in the arts. So, how have you found the last um, eleven months or so? It's been very bittersweet. It's been a real mixture. I think recently I found it harder than I did at the beginning. Hmm. I think. Uh, That's the dog just entering and always <laughs> upstaging me. He just, he yeah. does this thing. He does this thing where he comes in and then he has a ball in his mouth and then he just drops it on the floor and he just goes, there you go. <laughs> I love this. I'm going sounds. to ignore him. But I just wanted to draw your attention, everyone's attention to what I'm dealing with here. Um, so it was, it was, um, that dog is the saviour of my life, to be honest, that mm-hmm. little Dachshund, who you may see a little later on, if he deigns to come and say hello, um, really was, he's five years old, and, uh, and I've never had a dog before, I never grew up with a dog, and, uh, and I have to say that he is my, he's definitely my therapy dog, or whatever you call mm-hmm. him, so he's, he's, he's been fantastic. I spent the first part I was in London rehearsing for the Royal Court, a fantastic new play called uh, Two Palestinians Go Dogging by an amazing young uh, uh, writer. And we were one week into rehearsal and we, we were um, we were we were shut down. And uh, I really we've got plans to, for it to, to go on again probably at the end of this year but it's a fantastic place so it really needs to be seen um so as i was one week into rehearsals we were all very aware when we were in that first week where we were coming in on the tube we knew that this was not going to be tenable and we were and we and as as is what has happened throughout the whole year um theatre and theatre companies and the organisations for London theatre took the autonomous decision to close down Mm. before the government told them to. Uh, They could see what was coming. So so hospitality and sports and theatre, all of those industries kind of could see because they were already getting people calling up going, we should we book tickets for this show because we don't think you know, it's going to be going on. So that was already happening. So, you know, the public forced everyone's hands, you know. Um, And I was in London. I was sharing a tiny little studio with my fiance and uh, Holly, who is a teacher. And she was, um, uh, we, we, we got on really, really well. And we had a fantastic time. She just lives just near Greenwich. So we walked in the park every day as our one, you know, designated um, form of exercise. Uh, really good having a dog in moments like that. <laughs> uh, but we we don't see a lot of each other for for one reason and another. My my work and she's very very busy, and so it was really lovely spending a summer with her and realizing that that um, that that we really helped each other and we'd talk about you know everything that was unfolding and 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 going oh this is you know predicting everything that's happening now is what we did we spent the whole summer just doing that eventually (laughs) we had to stop doing it because we were just getting on each other's nerves um and um and and so that was not bad and then Holly went back to school in September and I came back to Bristol which is where I live she exiled me for obvious reasons she didn't want me to be around her because she thought she was she was at risk and uh, we've spent four and a half months 
without each other, just me and the dog. It's been okay. I love being in Bristol so much more than in London. I'm so much happier here. We're also safer. <laughs> and um, uh, and it's been harder. It's definitely been harder. I think it's because I've realised that nothing is going to change very soon. And I really want to see my parents who live in Cyprus, which is impossible at the moment. And so I think I'm finding that harder. I think I'm also finding it harder mentally because... I look at what's going on and I think to myself, I feel despair. I feel despair and I feel that uh, we have lived through a crisis that has been as badly handled as in America, which is really saying something because that administration deliberately did nothing. Whereas Boris Johnson pretends that he's doing something, but actually all he really cares about is just keeping things up or everything is normal. Just ignore what's going on. Just carry on as normal. So so that has been hard and the deaths has been hard. I I I find myself sometimes just breaking down and crying because I just can't quite believe that we're living in this time. It's just just beyond my comprehension I just haven't got used to it I think I think every day every day we have over a thousand people dying I think what what the hell's happened as as you said it's it's an incredibly tough time for everybody and and yourself as 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 many others will have had to do has been separated from from loved ones for for quite a while have have you found that um kind of having a period to reflect maybe over the last four months have you found that you maybe have have, have grown or have, have changed as a as a result of of that that period of, of of isolation i'd like to think that i'd i'd like to think that i'd like to think that uh it's made me realize the things that i mustn't ever take for granted i try to be like that really mm. with everything that i do um and 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 I feel that that very much is where where I am right now. I think it's also tough because um, I've learned new skills. I've I've done things that I've never done before. Um, you know the the normal, you know, nonsense like <laughs> learning how to make a starter dough and all <laughs> that kind of stuff. I love cooking anyway, so I am not a complete about this right <laughs> so i am i am i i do love cooking um and i will and so that was a natural conclusion all right but um but my relationship my my uh, appreciation of what i do uh, i've been very lucky i'll talk about this later i've been very lucky to to work for at the moment with the berlin independent film festival and so watching movies by some incredibly talented people has has been just what I needed to re-inspire me, even though there's not much work on the horizon. There is something that I'm going to be doing, uh, a new production uh, in London. I can't tell you the title, I've signed an NDA, but but that's going to be happening soon. So there are, there are um, <clears throat> shoots of, positivity in the industry mm. theater is a completely different ball ball game but i think we're going to have to wait until we achieve some form of herd immunization before those kind of things go back but that could be sooner than we even an old cynic like me uh, expected it could be sooner than i expected and yeah we, we, you touched on a little bit of, of of where you are at the moment but where you were maybe 10 years ago uh, was was filming for for game of thrones which uh, mm. a lot of of my listeners will probably recognize you from um what was it like being involved in first of all game of thrones this this really big cult following i know you're only in three episodes of the first series but your character has had a a lasting impact on on fans of of, of that show in particular but then also in in star wars in in the crown in the danish girl some really really big um pieces of of cinema and and television um how has it been to to be part of of productions like that on on that scale it's thrilling 
I get terrible, terrible nerves. I get su such bad nerves. Yeah. Not necessarily about performing. I get terrible anxiety around uh, meeting people for the first time. You know that that first day of school feeling mm. that you get with a new job or when you're starting college for the first time. I get that all the time. Every time I start a new job, it's like that. Unless I'm lucky enough to be working with someone that I know very well. And that does happen from time to time. Um, but the reality is that every time that happens, I am so anxious about that first day. I get really nervous. I get really nervous about that. And I was much better at that than, than I am at the moment. I think it's probably uh, not seeing anyone for a long time that makes you feel like this. Um, but the thrill of working for productions like that, where you get to, uh, you know, see the process, because ultimately that's what the exciting thing is. You don't know what it's going to be like. I've done many, many uh, things that I, in fact, I, I've got a great reputation for being cut out of most of the stuff that I've ever <laughs> filmed. I have an amazing scene that will never see the light of day between me as the King of France and uh, and Mark Rylance in Wolf Hall. Mm. And it was the one scene that I had in it where I, it's incredibly explicit. Like he has an audience with me and I basically end up telling him that I know both Anne and her sister intimately and I explain why. And, um, and it was a really great scene, particularly because I got to do the talking in a scene with Mark Rylance, which never, ever happens because he's like legendary. Um, but I think uh, it was a bit too risque and we got cut out. So you'll see me in Wolf Hall, but I, I, the scene that I was there for it was cut. But that happens quite often when I'm when I'm working. It's probably because I can't help myself and I end up swearing and ruining the shot. <laughs> That's my excuse. It's probably because I'm a terrible actor. Um, but uh, so 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 the process is always the most exciting thing. And that for me has always been the case. It's it's kind of like I like the performing. I don't really watch the stuff that I do. I still haven't seen The Crown. I don't think I've even seen The Danish Girl. There's so much. I I had to end up seeing uh, a lot of stuff because you do ADR, additional dialogue recording. Yeah. So you have to see the stuff and then re-record your voice. So usually they catch me out that way and get me to watch what I've done like that. But most of the time, the thing that I enjoy the most about my job and my career is the process of making stuff. I'm much more of a director than a performer. And I started out as a director when I was studying um, at college. Um, but you know how the, the, these things always take their own course. And uh, I'm very much someone who follows my nose. I've never been particularly mm. ambitious. Uh, I think it's because I I've often had uh, imposter syndrome throughout my career. So I don't ever think that what, what I'm doing, I kind of deserve. Yeah. But that's just, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a psychological uh, impairment, I, I would imagine, <laughs> for doing in, a job in a like sense, mine. Then, in a sense, then, when you look back at the success, perhaps, of, of, of a Game of Thrones or, or, um, or The Crown, um, did you ever feel like while you were shooting those scenes that they would become the, the beasts that they have? I'm thinking in particular Game of Thrones when you're involved at such an early stage, um, in the production of that is there a sense in which the kind of like that imposter syndrome that you talk of kind of affects the way that that you view the the production as a whole i don't think so it's kind of strange because i feel it i sense it i'm aware of it i'm very hyper aware of it that's kind of the problem but on the flip side I absolutely know that I can do what I'm going to do. You know, in, in that kind of weird, not really knowing how I'm going to do it, but knowing that I've been here long in, enough times to realise that I'm going to like hold my nose and jump in and something's going to happen and that's going to be exciting. And 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 so, so it's real, it's a real double-edged sword. And I will probably 
I won't be a, I won't be lying if I say that there's a lot of actors who kind of have that similar because we're quite sensitive I think I think uh, I'm not saying that I'm a good actor in any shape or or form but but I think the best actors are the sensitive ones because they're the ones who have to interpret complicated stuff and then you know and and just kind of in, inhabit characters and make you believe them you know the idea of acting as pretense is so old-fashioned we you know no one thinks like that especially not in my not not nowadays no one talks about acting like that acting for us for for a modern audience is all about authenticity um even when you're doing a superhero show you know your the world that you're in has to be detailed it has to live it has to it has to have have uh uh things that you understand and relate to it can't completely be a, a something that we don't we can't relate to that that isn't how how uh storytelling works and so with game of thrones we had the books already we knew that the books were very successful particularly in america um the first time i came across it was when i went to go and buy a copy to do some research for my audition and it was in Waterstones in um, the 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 sci-fi and fantasy section, and it was number one, you know, with a little review underneath it. I was like, I've never heard of this. I'm not really into fantasy. I'm much more of a science fiction person, but um, I could tell why the book was so successful. It's a fantastically brilliantly written first book. Uh, turns fantasy into politics. We used to call it Game of Thrones is like The Sopranos, but set in Middle Earth. <laughs> so so that that's kind of how we used to tag it you know when we were working on the first season and and um and we we're all young and impressionable even you know Michelle F F Farley you know who who is who is incredibly uh you know amazing actress with a huge wealth of experience behind her even Sean Bean who has been in this situation so many times and we'd all be sitting outside having our fags outside the hotel where we were all staying like smoking because we're all so nervous about the next <laughs> few days talking about how um this could be a big thing this could be a big thing but of course, no one had any guarantees. We just knew that that the books were very, very successful. So there was a certain amount of expectation. But the but when you went on set and you realised the attention to detail, I think even when Sean, when you have someone like Sean Bean, who has been in some of the biggest productions in the world, saying, "I've never been on a set for a TV show with this amount of." Uh, detail and expense spent on it and and when he says that you go oh wow okay so this obviously is uh, this isn't what you normally find and and uh, you could tell that they were making that show for the long term mm. and it was uh, beautiful you there was no acting involved you just walked on set you made sure you'd learnt your lines I mean I had a little bit more tricky thing I had to, had to have choreography that I had to remember and uh, and it's like you know like that thing where you're like rubbing your chest like that that's hard enough remembering your lines when you're a little bit nervous let alone your lines and your moves <laughs> so my dance background came in very handy because we didn't have enough time to rehearse i mean this is the whole reason why they asked me about the audition do i sword fight and i was like um I, I have experience. I mean, I can't say that I'm a professional sword fighter. I'm sure that's illegal, but uh, but I but I but I did have experience, uh, and for the first time, I didn't have to lie about something that was on my CV because actors always put yes, can can tap dance and fire arrows with their t you know like there's always that kind of stuff. Horse riding is one of them, right? Horse riding is one of them because you always put it on because you think well. They're going to give me lessons anyway, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but that really came in very handy because when it came to the uh, stunt coordinators, they could cook up amazing fights for us and we just, we could do it. And that's half the, the battle with, with uh, stuff like that. I mean, we did have stunt doubles, but, but our deal, me and Maisie made a deal saying we're not going to let our stunt doubles get on screen we're going to do all ourselves and, and that is the thing that we're proud of that, that everything on screen is us wow. 
even with the fight with the Lannisters in, in episode eight. And of course, there's, there's this air of mystery around that character as well. Was that something that drew you towards the character? How do you get into a character in a sense is, is what I'm kind of asking here. What's your process of, I know you said that you read the books um, that you kind of do some investigation and research around the character. And I suppose that would be the same for every character that you kind of get into, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just interested to, to know the process between um, letting go of Miltos and becoming Cyril Pharrell, for, for instance. It's a good question. It's a really good question because I don't know how much you let go of Miltos. I don't think you do. I think what you have to do is layer. You lay on top. And the thing is about casting is that there's an instinctive thing that happens when you do your casting. For example, I did a casting today for a for a for a for a very interesting movie with a very interesting director and um, and uh, for a very interesting character and. <laughs> It, it it it's all set in in a mad world it's all mad it's it's all like you know nothing that relates to anything that exists in this real world so so it's all about using your imagination the other thing is you need to know who you're casting for uh that sometimes helps that can sometimes be a red herring um the bottom line is that you get a, a, a script and you're asked to read for it and put it on tape and it gets sent off and you don't know who's going to look at it and it will get seen and hopefully someone will go ah, that's an interesting tape let's uh, get him to do it again and that's usually what happens you do it more more than once uh, and and so you do something in that first 24 hours which is purely instinctive it literally, it's just whatever you're getting off the script. And then that is the blueprint for the role, if you get it. And I remember this happening because they gave me that three and a half minute first scene with Arya Stark to read for my casting. Other people got away with reading for 20 seconds. I had a three and a half minute scene. Even to the point when when I when I did it in front of David and Dan, they they were they didn't go that's amazing. They just went wow that's long, and I was like, is that, that <laughs> all you got to say that I have done the longest audition in front of you? Everyone else came in and did twenty seconds. Is that all you've got to say? I didn't say that, of course. I I, I um, but I do remember that sticking in my head, and I thought to myself, what do you want me to? How do you want me to play this part? It can be flamboyant. He could be very stoic. He could be a man of little words. He could, there's so much. There were so many ways of doing it. But Dave and Dan went back to, and they were just, they just said, just do it the way you did it in the casting. Your instincts are right. That's why we cast you. Your instincts are connected to something that lives inside of you. Trust yourself. Don't try and pretend don't create a character that doesn't exist. We see Sirio in you. So just be Sirio the way you can. And so that might, that may seem like, you know, a fob off, but I completely understand what they mean. And invariably when you're doing TV and film, that first casting that you put no thought into, I mean, you, you have to learn the lines, but usually you don't have very long to do it. So it's kind of instinctive, it's spontaneous. That is the blueprint for, for whatever the role's going to be. So you can flesh things out, but but if I'd done something completely different to that, to that tape, I think they would have gone, hang on a minute, what are you doing? <laughs> so, 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 so that's an interesting thing. That's interesting because it means that you have to rely much more on your imagination and your instincts, which to be fair, I think the best actors try and do that. The ones the ones who do that really, really effectively are, the, are really good actors, I would say. And you mentioned as well your kind of beginning as, as, a, as a director um, more, more, than, more than an actor. Is that something that you look for when you're casting yourself? Certainly when I'm doing my tapes, I try to, I did a ridiculous thing because it's, I don't have anyone to read with. So most of the stuff, it's like dialogue stuff. 
And for the very first time yesterday, I decided just to cut myself into the tape. So I dressed myself differently and did all the lines, the, the lines that I'm supposed to read with. <laughs> I shot it and then edited it into the, to the tape. God knows what they're going to think of it. I mean, normally you just hear someone's voice off screen as you're doing it, but yeah. I've literally cut myself into a scene with myself. Tough times, man. Tough times. <laughs> and and your kind of acting isn't isn't always on on screen either. You, you've done some acting on on stage. Um, I'm just wondering, to what extent is that a different kind of kettle of fish to to acting on screen? I know, for example, that a lot of the stuff that you do would be live with an audience. That isn't the case when when you're on screen. Um, does it take a different kind of, of actor to act on stage? I think so. You need to be... There are some very good actors, TV actors, who can't do uh, stuff on the stage just because acting is so different on screen to on stage. It kind of comes from the same place, but the effect has to be different because you're having to communicate... Uh, I don't know. I don't know how to do this, to be honest. Uh, but there are some fantastic actors who can convey subtle, subtle thoughts across huge distances without trying very hard. I do it by just being louder and bigger <laughs> and pulling, <laughs> pulling bigger faces. But I would, I would say that that isn't the best tactic. It's just what works for me. Um, I mean, it's the part of the reason why I play kind of big, you know, you know, I've, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've played bottom in Midsummer Night's Dream. You know, <laughs> literally that is kind of my personality on stage. I, I wouldn't say that's my personality in real life, but definitely on stage, I'm I'm a bit of a show off. So, um, so, so I think it it's, it's very different, the effect. I don't think the process is very different because we we do the research, we do the work. The, the big, huge thing, of course, is that you don't rehearse on TV and film. Unless you're playing the lead, so you're going to be, a, 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 there's a fundamental relationship in a film or in a TV show that needs to be plotted. Mm. We'll work with a director and with writers to make sure that you understand the plotting of that so that you, you absolutely know where you're going psychologically. Um, that happens a lot. But most of the time, no rehearsal on TV. They just expect you just to learn the lines, turn up, and just do it. And 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 of course, the huge difference is that in theatre we rehearse between four and eight weeks. So, so that is um, that's a huge difference. And and I like theatre. Theatre will I will always be the thing that I go back to because I love it the most. But it's also the hardest job to do and earn a living as well that's tough that's really tough i think i earn less now i nowadays than i did 20 years ago mm. in theater that's how bad it's got and of course as well we mentioned towards the start of the um towards the start of the interview the kind of current situation with with theater and and the performing arts and of course that's affected um actors and directors um do you think that Theatre will have to to adapt more than more than other sectors, kind of going forward, coming out of this pandemic. I don't know. I a lot of my friends who are theatre practitioners, producers, and directors around the fringes. Um, when theatres closed down, there was this huge movement that whatever happens, we don't go back to normal because there's a lot of problems within the theatre world, the whole hierarchy and the whole uh, who's making stuff and who's getting the money and um, uh, where are the, the diverse voices and where are the, the money for plays that take risks and how do we nurture that? How do we stop the commercialization of, of, of our theatre culture? Because it's easy to make money when you've got um, uh, Adam Driver starring in your show because those tickets are going to sell out. 
and and I don't blame producers for using actors because you know these these actors are fantastic actors. I'm not do not just because it's Adam Driver. Adam Driver is a remarkable actor. The difference is we have to encourage an ethos whereby we we nurture audiences. Mm. You don't nurture an audience by giving them something that they cannot resist. <laughs> You nurture audiences by making them curious and inquisitive and willing to seek out stuff for the joy of the surprise rather than getting what they want. And that is something that we need to change in a profound way, because right now where we are, it's we're going to the audiences, but we need to bring audiences to us because we have stories to tell that that. Um, in the same way that I've been working with this, um, with the Independent Berlin Film Festival, getting to watch movies that I would never watch, that would never cross my radar, and being so surprised that it inspires me. And I believe that that's what happens when you see good theatre. Now, there's a lot of theatre that isn't very good for lots of reasons, and it isn't because the talent is not very talent, it's just because it's stories that how many times do we have to see see and hear these stories about about these people and uh and how many times are we going to see a production of i don't know i'm not going to make, give you examples because because you know there's lots of very good theater it's about why we're telling stories that's the most important thing the, ta the talent is all there the 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 motivation all of that is there what we don't have is a good enough reason to tell stories and we need to find it and we need to find something that is vital and we have to nurture audiences by creating spaces that they do not think oh i need to get dressed up and going to the theater you know here in bristol tom morris who who has spent his whole career from from bac uh, down in london to here with this ethos about how do you create a space that is a community space. It, it, you, you, you can use it all through the day. It's a creche. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a place to, to, to work. It's a place to eat. It's a place to hang out with your friends. It has to be a hub. And he's very smart about this kind of stuff because it really makes a difference. He's nurtured his audiences. He's created a whole. Uh, outreach section, which is community-based theatre that isn't just token and is put on for two nights and that's it. That there's that's your lot. These shows tour. They go around the world. They get picked up. They win prizes. The people that come from them end up doing incredibly well. This is what this is. This is what we need to be doing all over the country. Do you think, as you mentioned that theatre might evolve and, 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 de and develop. Um, do you think that audiences will have more of a thirst for, for more independent stories or different kinds of stories now that they have had the chance to kind of go to the theatre, remove from them? Or do you think it'll go the opposite way and there'll be a big clamour for, for more of those kind of hit shows that that you were that you were mentioning that that it's kind of been accommodating at the moment how do you see that developing well the reality is that uh the shows that will open first will be the ones with the big backers so the cameron mm. um uh, 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 cameron mcintosh shows and the uh, those are the shows that can afford to take the hit financially if you can't have a full audience but the reality for most theatres, you think about the Royal Court, um, you know, you don't have thousands of people in there. Uh, in the studio, 50 people, 50, 50 seat capacity. These shows can't operate without huge subsidy. This is why the industry is in real trouble, because we are not like some kind of um uh organization that has got money that it can sit on and use in an emergency these theater companies literally the money comes in in one hand and leaves out of the other that's it and all you need to do is be closed for a couple of months and that 
is pretty much ruined. You know, the, all of these questions are, are, are real questions and questions that that is the reason why it needs support. You can't just go, listen, it will be fine by the winter, this time, you know, by next winter, we'll be having pantos again and you'll be able to open up. And, and it's like, well, they won't because they won't have any money. Shows have to plan years in advance, not months, years. So, so, so there will be a backlog. For example, the show we were working on, the plan is that we'll put, it on so so there is there is a group in place that they can work with but you know raw court is very lucky because it does have a lot of sponsorship and and, and not sponsorship but it does have a lot of uh a support um government and 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 such like so and also the grants have kept it going um but it's a bit arbitrary. It's a bit arbitrary. And so we have to be careful of that. But you're right. When we're allowed to go back to the theatre, there will be a huge desire to go back to the theatre. That I do believe that. I do believe that in the same way that they'll that we'll go back to restaurants and all of those things. There'll be a few of us who are like, I never really liked it anyway. This is a good <laughs> excuse to not do it anymore. Um, but the 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 reality is that there will be, there will be that. But beware the shows that come back first because those will not be the ones that are nurturing their audiences they will be the ones that are going here i know this is what you needed adam driver topless for two and a half hours <laughs> just reading out of a telephone directory if i was a producer that's what i'd do and i would be i wouldn't be talking to you that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> And um, yeah, wow, that's uh, <laughs> didn't expect to have the image of Adam Driver topless. Reading. <laughs> I'm so mind. sorry. At the start Apologies of this interview. <laughs> Adam Driver for using him as an example. But I think he is a good example of someone who is incredibly talented and also very, very famous. <laughs> mm. And of course, um, was in was in a, a movie with you as well, wasn't he? Yeah, I never got to meet him, unfortunately, but just me and um, John in makeup mm. he was always trying to find out what was going to happen at the end of game of thrones he'd never stop pestering me <laughs> this is J john boyega yeah yeah he was a big fan yeah I, sorry this this adam driver image is just i'm so knocked me, knocked me sorry not me off the pace it's absolutely fine miltar story <laughs> 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 this is this is going to make it really hard to segue into the question I was going to ask you. But you talked about kind of sponsorship and and the the government kind of um, supporting some theatres and, and and not supporting other companies. What do you feel like the um, like the arts needs in terms of support from not only the public, like you said, they need to come back to to theatres once once they reopen. But do you think the government has done enough and if not what do you think the government should be doing to support the arts sector the trouble with this government is that it kind of needs to be dragged kicking and screaming to do half the things that it does unless they can find a way to monetize their aid <laughs> they're kind of not interested like if they, if they could get Circo to run theatre, they would be on it. They would be all over it <laughs> because they know that they could kind of, you know, make a bit of money on it. The, the reality is that culturally, it's not just about money. It was very important. The gr grants were very, very important. But... Lots and lots. The trouble is when you give money to organisations, you miss out a huge fundamental uh, aspect of that industry, which is the workers. The majority of uh, uh, freelance artists um, aren't being supported. 
they can't get a grant to carry on. Um, if they're even lucky enough to have savings, they're probably gone by now. You know, the, the reality is, is that we all work in a very precarious industry. And any one point, you know, like, what is it? 80% of us are unemployed within the acting profession, creative profession. And, and so there are a lot of people who have left the industry who are never coming back. That's the, rea that's the reality. Um, but the way, the way governments can help uh, the arts is simple, is to care about it. It doesn't matter how much money you give it. It doesn't matter what you say about it. Everything is a token. The reality is what we really need to do is, is just to enable it to exist and to be proud of it and to, and to not do stupid things like just not think about people who work in Europe, which is what the majority of us do, by the way. Uh, we work in Europe. We're not, not just musicians, but actors and directors and touring and cultural exchanges and not just this idea of, of, of you know, completely eradicating uh, freedom of movement means that uh, we're not willing to do any negotiations so that people can still um, be encouraged to work because Europe has been great for the arts. That is the reality. Europe has been great for the arts. And the trouble is with this government that doesn't really care about the things that we care about because, you know, they don't need our support. We don't, we hate them. So we, we always will hate, hate them. So they have not, they don't owe us anything and, and we don't owe them in anything. And there is this kind of this, or this war that constantly happens. The same thing with teachers. Why are teachers never listened to? Because they can't offer the government anything, not one single thing. The only thing they can give the government is a pain in the ass because they have never been listened to. When my partner, who's a teacher, when she was saying, we, we, we cannot just open the schools, you can't tell us that the schools are safe. When we work in them and we know that they're not because we know that you think that, that schools are putting some provisions in place. They're not. There, there is no, if you've got a school in inner London, in Tower Hamlets, and you've got 1,700 people in that school, how on earth are you going to be able to social distance if all those ki kids are back at school? And this is what happens in this, in, 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 in our industry, in teachers, in, in the, the medical profession, it will happen continuously. And that is a real problem. And that is why we cannot just accept that it's going to be okay. We have to fight for it because I guarantee you it's not going to be okay. Shows like the ones I was going to do, edgy, you know, I mean, dealing with uh, the, the Israeli-Palestine uh, uh, eternal conflict in an irreverent way, but with important things to say, that's that that ain't gonna happen. Like you gotta you gotta subsidize that. You have to encourage that kind of stuff. That doesn't come out of the commercial world. So so we need to fight for our expression. I think that's the point. If you don't just want to see Adam Driver shirtless reading out of a, reading a telephone directory, you have to nurture the important stuff and it usually it's stuff that you wouldn't even dream of going to see it, you haven't even thought of it i haven't even thought of it it's about being surprised our culture and our art when it works the best it surprises us and it opens our eyes and it makes us think about things and it educates us and those things aren't pious or uh you know nanny state you know these are these are exciting things that we should all be eager to explore and that's why i get so passionate about it and i apologize for this rant but this is this is the reason why to me it's important that it, it it's 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 supported because we can't rely i mean we if you just wanted to see commercial successes we can do that we can create commercial shows until until the it's coming out of our ears but that's not where our culture lives
Our culture lives in, in, I mean, Shakespeare, political stories, for God's sake, you know, reflecting the times, you know, holding power to account. These, these things, they don't happen just because you want them to. You have to create the environment for them to thrive. And when that is what we're going to have to find again. But hopefully with a reset, we might find it better. We might find it quicker. We might find it in a more direct way. And that could be a positive thing. And, and you mentioned these, these new voices, these surprising kind of shows. And you mentioned the, um, the, the Berlin Independent Film Festival that, that you're involved with. Um, what is that like trying to 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 look at and, and actually getting to experience these these new surprising pieces of art um, and to to recommend them to people and what should we be looking out for in the near future which directors which up and coming actors um, and and what kind of direction do you think filmmaking is going in? See, it's interesting when you get to you when you get it's a very it's a nice luxury of working for an independent film festival because you're going to see. Uh, stuff that you'll definitely see in the cinemas, but you'll also see stuff that hasn't got a, hasn't been uh, got a release yet, and may never get released. I think all of these have been screened. I think already, a couple of one have won already awards at Rain at Sundance, um, and other uh, things like that. So, but for example, I've seen a horror film. Uh, a schlocky horror film, uh, 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 an interesting take on Witchfinder General from Neil Marshall, which uh, is really interesting because it it, it takes um, a, the story of those times and turns into a woman finding her voice and her power and 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 I think that is a really refreshing way of looking at those stories. It's still a bit of a horror film you know has those moments Neil Marshall of course um uh who made uh, the descent if you've seen that film if you haven't you've got to watch no, I, it I haven't it's I haven't amazing. recommend it's it. amazing I'm not going to tell you anything about it just watch the descent um and a great companion piece with the witch I would say those two the reckoning and the witch would be a great companion piece two very different films about a similar subject and um, an amazing film by Lani Zipoy, who is a, a remarkable director, female director who, who has been around for a long time, done, done theatre. Um, and this uh, is a film with Jason Briggs in, who is from American Pie in a completely different role. And that's called The Subject. And that's about a documentary filmmaker. And it's pretty much the most apt film for the for our times it's very interesting it's all about well I'm not going to tell you what it's about because the the, the the reason why I love these films is because I knew nothing about them so every second I was watching them there it was a revelation you know it's like I literally had no idea who was in it what I was going to see I literally knew the title and that was it not even a synopsis did I read I thought I'm going to come at this really fresh so but that's that's a great film that will be out uh, soon and to me stories that feel so pertinent for our times that feel like they tell they that they they help explain something that we're feeling even if we don't understand it I think films like that they're few and far between but every so often they turn up and they are they floor you because they make you think about your life and it's good really good it's a very important thing to do because with everything else that's been going on the last last year self-reflection is something that we've all been doing because we've had the time to do it and and I think there's been a lot of terrible terrible heartbreaking things that have happened this last 20 last 2020 2020 feels like 20 years I was going to say the last 20 years it's, <laughs> it's not that long it's just a year but one of the one of the positive things I feel is that maybe it's given us a chance to really reflect on 
is this the way we want it to be? Is this really the way we want it to be? When we talk about getting back to normal, what is that? What is that exactly? What is it that you really want to be able to do? And, uh, and I think things will be different forever. I think uh, the idea of getting on a plane and traveling to a business meeting across the Atlantic may be less in demand because why would you do that? I mean, why? When we don't have to, and I used to do that, even I did that, and I have no reason to do it. You know, they could have just called me up. We have the technology. <laughs> There's no reason. There's yeah. no reason for me to go to, into Soho and do a tape. I do them, do them at home now. Uh, I think a lot of us are going to find that we are, we are, uh, and, and sometimes it will be positive. And other times it will be businesses realizing that they don't have to do it like this anymore. And that won't be so positive because people will be affected by that. But but things will change irrevocably, I think. Yeah, it's been a very, very insightful, thoughtful uh, chat for, for the last 40 minutes or so. I, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I lost track of time. Was... Actually, an hour. An and hour, I, wow. And I, yeah, but it's okay because this is what I do. You, you ask me a question and I, I will just, I will, I don't stop. But that's because I am living by myself. And so I don't get to talk to people very often. <laughs> so this is bound to happen. Well, yeah, I've been absolutely enthralled by, by some of the, uh, the discussions that we've had. And we've been on a real journey from interruptions from dogs, interruptions from shirtless Adam Driver reading from the telephone directory. Um, and even going to some of the things that we should be looking out for in, in, yeah. in cinema and, and on, yeah. on the stage in the next few few months and years. Um, but it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you, Miltos. Um, and I hope that, that you are able to get back onto the stage very soon. Oh, we, we, we're going to be all right. Well, we're going to find a way, you know, and, uh, and we, we will find ways of, of kind of doing cool stuff. Because it's what we do. We can't, we just can't help ourselves even if we don't want to. I still have plans to retire and just go back to Cyprus and, and just, you know, make olive oil. But uh, I know my profession is a bit like the mafia. Just when you want to escape it, they pull you back in. <laughs> <laughs> and with that image, I'm gonna leave you all there. I've been Joshua Nickel, and you've been listening to In Discussion with Miltos Urolimo. Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio Podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.